Who is Rava? Yafa Efti. Um, Yafa serves as Director of Education in North America for the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. She received rabbinic ordination from Yeshivat Maharat, which many of us, who went, oh, all of us who went to New York went to visit, and holds a law degree from Bar Ilan University. She has studied at the Pardes Kolel, the Advanced Talmud Institute at Matan, and the Talmud Department of Hebrew University. Yafa has been a teacher of Talmud, Jewish law, and liturgy at Pardes for over a decade, and has taught Talmud and Jewish law at Yeshivat Maharat, the Drisha Institute, the Wexner Heritage Foundation, Kayam Farm Kolel, Young Judea, Limud UK, the Dorot Fellowship, and for Hillel, the Foundation for Jewish Campus Life. So, uh, very impressive credentials. Please join me in welcoming our teacher, Rabbi Yaffa Epstein. All the way from New York City. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Hi. Um, I'm so excited. Oh, <clears throat> good. Oh boy, I'm already so loud. I don't know if this is going to work out. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stand back here. Is it still good? No, no, no. Okay. Closer. Okay. All right. I hope that, you know, if, if it's too loud, just go like this. I'll get it. Okay. So, um, hi, everybody. I'm Yafa Epstein. Ari, thank you so much for that wonderful uh, introduction. It's, it's always amazing to be here. Um, with CSP and with this wonderful community. I'm just very, very grateful. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I also want to do a quick, uh, tell you a little bit about Pardes. I'm the Director of Education North America for Pardes. Pardes is a non-denominational co-ed Jewish learning program, um, and we feel very close to CSP. We've had several uh, of our faculty here um, because it's really all about bringing different kinds of Jews together to learn. We have a bunch of Pardes alumni in the audience. Pardes alumni, raise your hand. There you go. Uh, wonderful. So uh, amazing. So if you want to know more about Pardes, we're happy to talk to you about it. Particularly, I want to draw your attention to two things. One is the Executive Learning Seminar, which is an amazing week in Israel um, over July 4th weekend and over Christmas, New Year's week. Um, and, then you, and then get right back here for, uh, for the month-long program. Yeah, yeah. I know. They'll come right back for January 3rd. Um, so think about that. There's brochures over there. And also, um, Pardes also has um, podcasts. Uh, online that we have every week. Parsha, lots and lots of different kinds of podcasts. This Pardes Life, some Hasidut, Hasidic thinking. Uh, we are actually number two in the Judaism section uh, of iTunes, which I'm, we're very, very proud of. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan Sachs is number one. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's, so anyway, we're very happy to, to, if you guys want to check that out, it's really worth it. There's more information on the side about Pardes. Um, but what do we actually do at Pardes is we do intensive, serious, classic Jewish texts. So that's what we're going to do together. Um, my friends, the topic today is called Buria, Truth, Myth, and the Construction of the Ideal Woman. And I want to tell you a little bit about her. Buria is sort of my hero, I'd say, my rabbinic hero, um, because she is one of the few women that is named in the Talmud. Uh, and she's one of the few women who is named in the Talmud who actually teaches us Torah. She's not just a character, but she's actually a teacher of Torah in the Talmud. And many programs and many schools are named after her. Many, many, um, many people name their daughters after her. But actually, she's a really complicated character and very, very complex, as every character is, as every human being is. And so it's not so uh, black and white, whether she's great, she's bad. And we're going to look at uh, several sources that discuss her. First of all, it's important whenever we look at uh, Talmudic pieces to um, to talk about their historical and literary context. So I just want to say who is she and where does she come from. She is a, she is a uh, character, uh, I want to say she's a rabbi. I, my, my claim about Buria is that she's a rabbi because the way in which she behaves is just like how the rabbis of uh, the Mishnah behave. So we're going to look at that. I'm going to posit that and you guys can tell me whether I sold, I, I sold it and convinced you by the end of the hour, okay? Um, so, uh, <laughs> but. Um, she lives in the time period of the Tanaim, of the rabbis of the Mishnah. So we're talking between the years 0 and 220 CE, probably around 150. She is said to be married to, come on in. She is said to be married to uh, Rabbi Meir. She's the wife of Rabbi Meir, who is one of the most important and famous rabbis of the Mishnah, who is the student of Rabbi Akiva. And she is said to be the daughter of Hanania ben Teredion, who is uh, one of the 10 martyrs that we read about on Yom Kippur, okay? And he had his own tragic story, and 
the sources that we're going to look at together um, are going to be all of the sources that name her, right? I'm basically going to give you a sheet with every time that she appears in uh, the Babylonian Talmud and other rabbinic sources. There are other places where we see the daughter of Hanani ben Teridion, and it's a big question whether it's her or her sister. Uh, we'll talk more about that, okay? Also, a word about her name. Bruria is actually a composite of two words, Barur and Yah, God's name, right? Barur, clarity or the clarification. So I think, I want, I think it's very interesting to think about. And in, rabbinic, in the rabbinic world, names mean a lot, and they, take a, they put a lot of stock in what the names mean and when, how they name characters. So I think it's interesting to notice that this woman, who is one of the few teachers of Torah in the entire rabbinic uh, corpus, is named the clarity or the clarification of God. Right? Very interesting. OK, let's begin. Okay, my friends, so normally at Pardes, we always do chavruta uh, learning, which means you would turn to the person next to you, you'd learn in pairs, but in the interest of time, and because Shabbat is upon us pretty shortly, we're gonna not do chavruta, which is a little bit like sacrilegious from where I come from, and we're, uh, but I wanna like ask your indulgence and say that we're gonna act together now as one big chavruta. So even though I'm, it's gonna sound like I'm talking a lot, you should know I'm your chavruta partner. I'm your friend which means you can contradict me, you can critique me, you can push back against what I'm saying. If you don't like it, if you disagree, jump in, okay? Feel free, we're just gonna be one big chavruta, which I like to call, this is a Yaffa Epstein joke, I like to call an infituta, an infinite number of chavruta partners. We're just one giant chavruta now, the whole room, okay? Which means disagree with each other, disagree with me, dive in, right? I like to say, also, Torah is not a spectator sport, okay? You can't just watch it from the sidelines. I need you guys to jump in here with me, okay? So the first source on our pages is from Tosefta Tractate Kalim, just a sentence about the Tosefta. The Tosefta is a work of rabbinic literature that is contemporaneous to the Mishnah. Okay, it's another, uh, it's another grouping together of law. The word Tosefta means lahosif, right, is additional. And it's said to be the it's sort of additional rabbinic material that doesn't make it into the Mishnah. That is worth, a, that's a huge debate among the scholars. We can talk about that next time. Uh, what the Tosefta is exactly, but it's important to understand in terms of its time period, it's contemporaneous to the Mishnah, so we're talking between zero and 200. Tractate Kalim is the tractate of the Mishnah that deal, and the Tosefta, that deals with objects and their purity and impurity. Before we look at this text, it's important to know that, um, that in Judaism, in Halakha, objects can only acquire impurity, this is gonna sound very counterintuitive, so stay with me, only acquire impurity when they are incomplete. Sorry, the opposite, see? Very counterintuitive, I can't even say it. When they are complete, right? So in other words, uh, this microphone will only become impure if it is whole. If I were to take off the top of the microphone, it would not be able to, to acquire, to attract impurity. Does that make sense? Broken objects cannot become impure, only whole objects. With me? <laughs> so if I'm impure and I touch this, it becomes impure. But if it's broken, then it doesn't. Only if it's whole. Okay? Yes. Is Kayleen Just tell me your name. Uh, Sandy. Sandy. Is Kayleen related to, um, I mean, like in Hebrew, isn't that the like cooking utensils and things? Is it yes, yeah, exactly. So, but yeah. in, this, in this case, it's every other thing? It's objects. objects. It happens to be what we're about to look at is an oven. But it doesn't have to only mean kitchen objects. Kayleen can, can be any utensil, any object. Mm -hmm. Again, again, your name? Gail. Gail. People too? No. Oh, people and you mean you mean people have to be whole in order to acquire impurity? No. 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 Uh, do you, wait, hold on. Do you mean can people uh, attract acquire impurity from each other from touch? Yes. Not in this context. It's its own context, but yes, that's the, the number one impurity we talk about is human impurity. And that, right, and touch is how impurity tra transfers. Touch, sometimes being in the same room with impurity, right? Huge area of law, 
not for her right now, but I'm happy to talk more about it, okay? Okay, great. So, we're talking about an oven here, guys. Ready? Tenure, an oven. From when does it acquire, acquire in the English side, source number one. From when does it acquire tuma, impurity? From when does it become tahor, pure? Meaning, from when does it become pure means, when is it considered broken? Not when we would think pure, whole, no. When, when is it considered broken? Rabbi Chalafta from the village of Hanina said, I asked Shimon ben Hanania, who asked the son of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, right, Beria's father, and he said, when you move it from its place, and his daughter said, when you disassemble its pieces. When these things were stated before Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, he said, Yefeh amra bito mibno, better stated was the daughter than the son. Okay, so everyone understands the case. The case is like this. We're asking, when, does an oven when is an oven considered broken? One is when you move it. That's one answer. Hanim Adhurdyon's son says, when you move it from its place. And his daughter says, when you disassemble its piece. Break it down. Okay, everybody with me? Yeah, okay. When they repeat this conversation in front of Yassi ben, Yehu, sorry, Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, who is ruling, he says, Better stated was the daughter than the son. Okay, so the daughter of Hanani ben Tardion, who we are reading in this case, and other sources corroborate this, seem to say that this is Bruria, okay, says when she rules on law, and then another rabbi basically affirms her ruling. Everybody with me? Okay. So, what do we think about this? She positive or negative character here? Very positive, phenomenal, right? Yeah, why? She's smart, good. Good, she's smart. Okay, what else can you tell me about her? She spoke up. Good, really important point here, right? Who did they ask? Who did they ask the question to? The son. They don't ask her. She's not in the conversation, my friends, right? which is often the case in halachic discourse. She's not there, right? And Beth says to us, she had to effectively insert herself. I always, the way we read this text for me is like so interesting, right? Like, where was she? Where was she? Was she sitting in the room? Was she in the corner? Was she in the kitchen? By the time. I imagine, I really do, I really imagine they're having this conversation, right? And, and rabbinic homes are not that big, right? Probably a one bedroom if we're lucky, right? Um, too loud? No, no, no. No? She's overhearing. She's overhearing. Okay, I didn't know. Because I told you to say this before. So. Right, okay, good. So, uh, right? She exact, I wonder, like, they're having this conversation. They show up and they ask her brother, right, this question. And she, right, is in the other room and she goes, What the heck do you know about ovens? Why are you talking about ovens? I know about ovens. Do you want to know when ovens broken? Ovens broken when you take it apart. That's when it's broken. Not when you move it, right? I know about ovens. And what do you know, right? And to say, and it's interesting to me, like where we we're going to look at this together. But where we allow her to rule, what are the areas of law where she has a say? It's true. Now I, I want to see. I want us to see this because I think it's interesting, right? On the face of it, we read this text. And we're like, oh, this is amazing. Look at this moment of feminism. It's awesome. She said halacha. The rabbis listen. But you just scratch the surface like a little bit, and you think, huh, well, where is she? Is she part of the conversation? Did she have to insert herself? Why did they come to ask her? What is the area of law that she's allowed to speak about? I think it's important to ask those questions critically of this text. Because it's true, it's nice, yafam rabbi tobi mibno. It's nice to say that she said better. It's a very yeshivish term, by the way, say better. They say often in yeshiva. It means like you said it good, say better. I mean, you can make it sharper, you can make it clearer. So to say that she spoke, right, she said better, is interesting. By the way, it doesn't appear very often in uh, rabbinic texts. And also important to notice that he doesn't say the halacha is like the daughter of Hanina ben Teradion, which I think is interesting. He says she spoke better, <laughs> right? Which, what else could that mean, she spoke better? What? She knew what she was talking about. Good. What else? That he spoke words. <laughs> good. He spoke words. Good. Yeah, fat. Good. Yeah. But you should listen to her. You should listen to her. Great. She had more clarity. Good. What does that mean? She had more clarity. What do you think that means? She's smarter. She's smarter. I have I also wonder if maybe they're saying the same thing. 
In other words, when you move it, and when you how do you move it if you don't disassemble it? Maybe ephemera here means she spoke more correctly. She said it more precisely. Ephemera means they're both right because it's the same law, but ephemera she spoke more precisely. That the issue at stake here, which by the way is really interesting, because then it's not just it's not just she knew more about ovens; it's that she knew how to communicate the law in a better, more precise, clearer way. And that's actually something interesting we're going to see about her is how she speaks, I want to argue, is actually very precise. And one of the things that she says is, be more precise. We're going to see it in a couple of different instances. So the precision or the clarity here, I think is really interesting. Yes? Oh, it's just oh, sorry, can you just remind me your name? Ed. Ed, Ed thank, yes. Um, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Because um, <laughs> you're Joey's dad. Huh? Yeah. You're right. Okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Hi, nice Hi. to see you. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, oh, it's nice to the difference, it seems to me, between the two of them is when the oven is moved, it's still an oven. When it's taken apart, it's no longer an oven. Beautiful. So, Beautiful. So, you know. Great. Yeah. Great. But, uh, but maybe when you is it say broken? When it's no longer yeah. functional. Beautiful. I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Excellent point. Very, very nice. Yes. Name is Larry. Larry. Uh, there's a resonance with uh, Akbar's oven. Yes. Beautiful, Larry. How does that position her? Wonderful. Right? Larry says to us, wait, wait, wait. Ovens and rabbis, I know about this. We've been here before, right? Okay, so, so right, the very famous story of the oven of Achnai, um, right, Tanerushal Achnai, also is exactly about this question of when do ovens become pure and impure, right? And Achnai, sorry, and Rabbi uh, Eliezer um, is the person who says, what Dafka, an oven of Achnai is an oven wherein you cut up your oven into pieces, and in between, you stick sand, okay? Between the layers, you put hole, you put sand. So it's actually a fascinating case because you could say, dafka there, specifically, I keep using the word dafka, I mean specifically, dafka there, I'm building a new oven. How could you say it's not a functional oven? It's dafka functional, except that. In between the pieces, I put sand. So is that enough to take away or add um, Purity or impurity, yes. It's an interesting question. I do want to just say, to be true to the text, this is not the only place we talk about ovens. So in other words, it's not like those, these are the only two sources, in which case it would, I think, really be a strong connection. But I hear you that there's like a resonance here, and specifically that there's a machloket, that there's a disagreement, and also, right, that we, the law comes down on one side, right, is sort of an interesting moment here, right? So, so there, in the other story, also there's a whole big fight, a debate between the rabbis, so worth looking at, I'm happy to send sources out. It's a great story and there's a lot that's been written on it because it's all really about rabbinic authority, right? So Larry points out to us, this reminds us of the question of rabbinic authority and suddenly we have a woman's voice in a conversation about rabbinic authority in the exact topic that brought down literally the walls of the drash, right? It's a really, it's a, it's a wonderful resonance that's happening here. Excellent, excellent point. Effect. Good. Okay, so how are we doing guys? Everyone good? Okay, so we, all the questions I hope are surfaced. That's our job is to read this text. Oh, this is so great. And then, wait a minute surface bubble, bubble, by all the bubbles of the questions, like bubble up from this text. Okay, good. So let's, we're gonna do a couple more pieces, okay? Let's, let's meet her. Let's meet her now uh, when she's no longer alive. And this is definitely gonna be after her, um, after her death because the person speaking about her here is Rabbi Yochanan, okay? And Rabbi Yochanan is a rabbi who lives in Eretz Yisrael still. We're still in the land of Israel but he lives around the year 250. He's the first generation of rabbis post the Mishnah at the beginning of the Talmud, of the Gemara now, okay? So he's 250, so he's probably between 80 to 100 years after she lives. Okay, guys, with me? Okay, now, we're gonna see some politics here. You think that the Talmud's free of politics? It's full of politics, right? As Larry just said to us, one of the most famous stories of political, rabbinic political power, okay? So here we go. Rabbi Simlai came before Rabbi Yochanan and requested of him, let the master teach me the book of genealogies. Sefer Yuchsin, guys. When I, what, does that make, what does that sound like, Sefer Yuchsin? In fact, somebody just said this word before. Yechus. What does Yechus mean? Family lineage, right? Family history, which is not for nothing. Let's keep that in our minds because the Talmud never uses words that are not necessary, okay? So here we go. Right? He wanted to learn the book of genealogies. It's a big question what that is. It's a book we no longer have anymore in Jewish tradition. But it's a, it's a question what this is. Either it's actually a list of yichas, back to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? a list of lineage of the Jewish community, 
or it's a book about Yechis, right? Because as we may or may not know, um, the question of family status is a huge area of Jewish law, right? Tractate Yevamot deals with it intensively, and it's a very complicated area of halacha. Either way, we either it's about this or it's actually a list of the genealogies. In any event, we lost it, okay? And they had it at that time, we don't have it anymore. So, so <laughs> Rabbi Simai shows up in front of Rabbi Yochanan and he says to him, Listen, let the master teach me this book. Amar Lehi says to Mechana, where are you from? That's what you have to know, where are you from, right? He says to him, from Lod, city in Israel. He says to him, and where is your dwelling? Right, and I'm originally from Israel, I'm originally from Lod, which by the way, that's not great, because I'm the rabbis of the north, and these are the rabbis of the south, and we don't like them, right? <laughs> no, we don't like, that's a little strong as being recorded, but uh, whatever, there's some tension. Well, let's just say there's some tension, okay? So, uh, right, and, uh, and, right? and now I live in Neharda, now I live in Babylonia, so it's even worse, okay? Because I'm Rabbi Yochanan, I live in the north of Israel, okay? He said to him, what, <laughs> please? We don't discuss it with the Lodians or the Nehardians. And how much more so you, who's from Lod, and now you live in Arda. Forget it. Okay? You are presiding on grata with us. Like, thanks for playing. Okay? A very fascinating, you know, and we're talking about genealogy here, and now we're talking about? Sorry? Geography. Excellent, right? Place, right? Place and lineage. Really interesting to notice those two things come up, right? When we talk about rabbinic authority and rabbinic power, right? Um, but he, Rabbi Simlai, urged him, I love this, right? He bother, basically bothers him, right? And like doesn't leave him alone until he, right, eventually, right, um, gives in, okay? And then he has the chutzpah to say, listen to this guy, Amar Lehi, now teach it to me in three months, okay? That was it, Rabbi Yochanan had enough. He picks up, I really want someone to make this movie, I have to tell you, I am dying to see this scene in a movie. He picks up a club of earth, and throws it, literally, right? Shadarte, he throws it at him, right? Um, sorry, right, sorry, Patak Bey, right? He throws it at him, Amarle, and he says to him, Uma Bruria, debate to Mayor, Mayor, Barte to Hanina Ben Terajun, the Tanya Tlat Mea Shmatata, Biyoma, Mishalosh Mea Rabuta, Vafil Hachiloya Saydechovata, Bitlachani, Vatamart, Bitlata Yarche. I hope you notice how many Tlat, Tlat, Tlat we heard there, right? Which is three in Aramaic, right? Three, three, three. It's very important here. The literary repetition of the three here is significant. Bruria, the wife of Rimeir and the daughter of Echanina ben Teredion, who studied 300 laws from 300 rabbis in one day, and even she could not fulfill her obligation. And that's the literal translation. Lo She did not fulfill her obligation, which we're going to come back to in a second, in three years. And you want to learn it in three months? Who do you think you are? That's the end of the story, my friend. That's it. You don't hear what happens next. What happens? You leave him hanging his head in shame, right? So let's go. let's let's hear back. What do you guys think? Positive, bring a positive character, negative character. Positive again. Good. We read these stories. I imagine we say it's so positive. Wonderful. Great. Why positive? She knew so much too. Look how smart she was. Again, she's very smart. This woman. Good. What else? Yes. Okay, so I'm so sorry. I think, did you already tell me your name? Dahlia. Dahlia? Great. So it's such an important point. Dahlia raises here. Very, very important. And I want us to come back to it in a minute. But it's a very, very critically important point. Look at Sayyid Chovata. She didn't fulfill She has no obligation. What obligation did she not fulfill? Okay, good. So let's, we're going to come back to it in a second, but it's very important. What else, my friend? Yes, Karina. Um, I find it interesting that you have, this is all about lineage, and the only good. person in here Such an important point, right? Right, Rabbi Simlai, Rabbi Yochanan, I don't know who their fathers are. Normally we do, Rabbi Barachana, we have, right? We have above Hanin ben Saradion, right? Yehuda ben Baba, right? Yehuda ben Chalasa, we have all of these different rabbis, so what's going on? How come these don't have it? It's a brilliant point. And actually, really important to know here is that this is the first time in Jewish history where we have all three, no, yes, thank you, all three characters, uh, in one source. In other words, she has simultaneously her, her name. Her name is Bruria, her husband, 
this direction and her father. This is actually the only source where we have that. We have other places, the wife of the mayor, and we even have Buria, the wife of the mayor, right? And we have the daughter of Chaim Tarjan, and we have Buria, the daughter of Chaim Tarjan, but the, all three of them in one character, right, we don't have yet. And that's, actually, one second, and that's actually really significant, my friends, because many professors would claim that actually she's, there's three different characters. There was actually the daughter of Helen Benterjo, the wife of Rimeir, and Bruria. There are three different women. And later in Jewish history, we conflate them all into one personality, which is, I think, a very interesting uh, thought um, and, and, and important to note, right, that that's an academic position. And, uh, and I, think that, I think that that's an interesting, um, an interesting point here to, to, to make that actually in, in, there are times when I sort of have the conservation of characters and I conflate different historic personalities into one character, right? I also think it's interesting that like, we take all three smart women and put them into one character. It's interesting, right, to notice that. So that's already important, right? Remember, remember when I said, is this a positive story? And you all said, it's so positive. Okay, well, again, right, these little sort of moments of, is this positive or negative? But, but it's interesting to notice that part of her power, part of her authority comes from her yes, her lineage, right? I think that that's important to notice here. What do you guys think about this 300 yes? I have a question. Why, why did her name get pulled into this conversation? Because he's saying, because the very Simai shows up and he says, I want to do this work. He throws the dirt at him. Yeah. Because he says that she, who tried to learn this, did it in three years and she could. No, but there's a, I think there's a stronger point in your question. What does this do to Rabbi Why did you're asking? You're, what? What? You're not even good enough. You're not even as good as our women. You want to learn like us? You're not even as good as our women, right? Which I think is very significant. Right? That he did, this is one of my favorite Yiddish words, a shtuch. So there's a I think there's a real shtuch here, right? There's a real moment wherein Rabbi Yochanan is saying to Rabbi Simai, please, even Brewery, our women are smarter than you. Okay, it's a real put down. Which back to which is so positive, but she maybe is used as a tool to say, right? I just think it's important to pull these pieces back. Dahlia, you wanted to think before and I didn't let you, yeah. Is there a connection between the three, 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 like you were saying, and then the three Maybe. That's great. That's great. I love that. I've never heard of that before, and I've never, that's brilliant. I love that idea, right? She's like, these three characters are into one, three, three, three. I like it. I, it's very nice. It's very nice. It's fat. Beautiful. What do you guys think about this 300 laws from 300, what, what happened? Okay. 300 laws from 300 rabbis in one day. What do we think about that? What? Impossible. Fanciful. What a, what's another word you would say? Exaggeration. Exaggeration. Excellent. Yeah. We call it rabbinic hyperbole. Hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know what you're talking about, but I've never used hyperbole. Never. <laughs> um, okay. So, right. So, so it's, it's a very interesting thing to me because I read this very contemporary, contemporarily. And there's a, there's a real phenomenon, and I, I wonder how, what the women in the room would say about this. I'm curious, so feel free to pipe in here. But there's a, when women try to enter fields that are not normally, typically, women's fields, there's a very strong message that is given to women, which is, you have to be better. Oh, you all knew, good. I'm talking about understand what I'm saying. You have to be better than the men, right? To be smarter than a man, you have to be strong. You have to work harder. You have to prove yourself more. Be 150 percent so that you can be treated as if you were 100 percent. Yes, is this resonating at all with anyone in the room? Yeah. Okay. I think it's interesting to me that's what's happening here at Zuria. Right? She's not. It didn't just say she's extremely learned and she couldn't learn it in the right amount of time. I had to go into crazy hyperbole. Right? <laughs> 300 laws, 300 rabbis, and one day there aren't even 300 rabbis probably at this. I just want to be honest with you, right? In other words, how many rabbis are there in the year 200? Really? There probably weren't, right? So it's just, to, to, to the hyperbole here is more than even the reality of our time. And, and I, I think it's an interesting thing to notice here, who are the women who are allowed to sit in our Beit Midrash? And really, it's the woman, right? Who is allowed to? First of all, she has extreme connections, right? Extreme power. She is part of the rabbinic. She is insider, Shiba insider. Right, the most inside you could be. 
and she's a superwoman. That's a woman who learns the baby drash. A regular woman who has like a decent IQ and doesn't come from like a strong rabbinic family, does she think she had much chance of getting into the academy? Seems like no, right? So I, I think it's interesting to notice that. To me, this is, a, this is a source that's about that. One, I have to bring all three female characters up, make her a composite character, one. Two, she has to be super, super accomplished, right? And super connected, really have the ears. I also, th and, and, and that's, that's one important, I, one sort of read of this text. So on the one hand, it's true, she's not very, very smart. But what, was, what were the trappings that were necessary to allow her? And still, as Dahlia said to me, I still, what I say about her is, she actually didn't learn properly. <laughs> we read, I just want to remind this, we read, like, this is such a great story. Well, I don't really know, right? Like, it's a very interesting thing to me. It's very complicated here. But I do want to just, for a moment, take, uh, go back to Dahlia's point that I think is really important, which is, what does it mean, she didn't fulfill her obligation? It's true, classically, we say that women do not have a halachic obligation to learn Torah. So what do you guys think about that? Yes? She fell short of being one of us. Great, okay, good, good. She tried to be one of us and she didn't make it. Even though she was super, super woman, still isn't gonna be, isn't up to our standards. Good, what else? What else do we think about this? Okay, so in other words, this book is so difficult. It's a way of just saying, he was just trying to say, she wasn't able, she, she did, right? By the way, I, I, she couldn't do it in three months, I'm uh, sorry, in three years, but maybe she could do it in four years, right? I don't know if I just, I just stay in the motif of the three. Okay, it's impossible, yeah. Um, I remember when women started wearing uh, a talus and they wanted to put on a fillet, they said, well, if you're gonna act like a man, you better take on the obligations of Good, yes, beautiful point. Tell me your name again, I'm sorry. Sybil. Sybil? Really, really great point, right? Maybe there's a moment here of self-obligation, right? That is, that, that is actually the, the language of uh, the conservative movement of Rabbi Joel Roth when he wrote the tshuva, the uh, response to literature on, um, on women being obligated in mitzvot, particularly tefillin, counting in a minion, right? Leading tefillot, right? Being rabbis, the, the, the halachic position that he took was, right, I can obligate myself. I can take on those, when I do, once I do so, I have the same level of obligation as a man, right? So perhaps this is a moment where Bria said, I'm gonna take on the obligation of Limud Torah. I'm gonna self-obligate here. And there, right, and, but then it feels very negative again about her inability to actually be able to do it, right? So that's important. No, because no. he oh, wouldn't have used her as the example good. Good. if she didn't do more than everybody else, including the man. Right. You know, she had right. to be considered extremely right. brilliant. Great. Otherwise, you wouldn't have used her. Exactly. Unless we go back to the point about you're not even up to our women, right? So, great. I want to keep both of those things alive. I think they're both, it's an interesting question. Like, no, come on. I feel a little pushback, which is great, which is, Yafa, come on, read this positively. It's a wonderful example. She was extremely learned, she was very well thought of. And we use her 100 years after her, right, or 50 years after her death, we use her as an example of scholarship. That is only, that, that's gotta be a very positive thing, right? Good, effect, excellent, okay, good. All right, we're gonna do two more sources. I know our time is quickly running out, but um, we're gonna do two more sources. Source number three, okay? By the way, again, just to remind ourselves, what are the things she's had sort of, she's been able to learn or talk about? One was ovens, and two was Sefer Yuchsin, which is family. Right? Interesting, just to note these things, interesting. Okay, okay, maybe this is gonna be the same pattern, maybe it's gonna break the pattern, we'll see. Okay, this is the best story. Ready, <laughs> really, the best, okay? It really is, phenomenal. So, there once were some thugs in the neighborhood of a mayor who caused him great distress. Okay, now, biryonim, just so we know what biryonim are, these thugs, biryonim in the rabbinic world are what? Tough guys, they're tough guys, but specifically, it seems to me that they are the Jewish community tough guys, okay? Internal tough guys, okay? And we know this because when the, um, when the Romans came to, to put a siege on, uh, on Jerusalem, the three very wealthy men stepped in and said, we're gonna keep the city in wood, oil, and grain, and the Biryonim burnt down the storehouses, okay? Why? Because they wanted the people to fight. 
They wanted to instigate a war, okay? Fight back, don't just accept the siege and say, fine, well, we have enough sources and resources to last for a while. No, I want you to fight. Those are the Biryonim, okay? So the fact that we have a mayor here, and, and the rabbis and the Biryonim did not get along. So here we go. So we had, right, there were some thugs in the neighborhood mayor who caused him great distress. He accordingly prayed that they should die. Wow. I'm going to say that again. He accordingly prayed that they should die. Right? Like, what? Wait, what? I, this is a rabbi. I didn't any rabbis were mayor, guys. He's one of the most important rabbis of the entire Mishnah. Okay? What? Now, Bruria, I think, had the same reaction, right? <laughs> Amrale Bruria debates you. So this is what we see, by the way. Notice that Bruria is named as his wife, right? This is, this is very clear. We have both her name and the fact that she's married to a mayor. Okay? <laughs> she says to him, what are you thinking? I, what? You want, what? So, right, after all, is it, now, now, this is a great moment, right? Great moment, because here Bruria, like any, and this is why I posited she's a rabbi, because she's about to do the same thing that rabbis of the Mishnah do, which is she's going to utilize a text to, sorry? To make a point. To make a point. She's not just gonna say, don't pray that you should die. <laughs> Have some compassion. She's gonna say, wait, wait, let's look at a pasuk. Right, because that's what we do. Our language is verses. Our language is Torah. So I'm going to talk to you in your language, and I'm not just going to look at a verse and use it to prove a point or teach you a lesson. I'm going to look at it very precisely. Okay? She says, look carefully at this verse. Right? Is it written my datech? Okay? What are you thinking? Mishum After all, it is written. Right? Yitamu chataim. Let sin cease. Miktiv chataim. Is it written, let sinners cease? No, it's written sins, okay? Now, right, in other words, right, look carefully and read. Now, what's important to know, what's important to know about this text is that as we, at this point in Jewish history, we don't actually have vocalization of text yet. We don't have vowels, which means you can actually read the word, chet tet alef yud mem, either as, Chataim, sins, or as Chataim, sins. Okay? And she says, how should you read it? Sins. Read it as sins. Read carefully. Read with compassion. And then she says, but it's not just because I want you to read this way because I'm nice, but because I'm a good scholar. Because keep going, right? And let, right? furthermore, look at the end of the verse, she says. Keep reading. Don't stop in the middle of the pursuit. Keep reading. Furthermore, at the end of the verse, it says, and let wicked men be no more. Since the sins will cease, so you have to read it like this, it's very important, and this is true, okay? This is, this is how you know she's a rabbi. Since the sins will cease, there will be no more with the people. Rather, pray for them that they should repent, and there will be no more wicked people, right? He did pray for them, and they repented, and everything went well, okay? So it's a phenomenal story. This, this one, positive or negative? Positive, yeah. Positive, good. This one seems clearly positive. Wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna press your button. That's my job. My job is to take the positive and see it's more complicated. Yes. So, as you just said, the text was unvocalized. Logic would say, if you look at the second half, good. it means chotim. It doesn't mean chataim. She's drawing out the lesson, which the rabbis love to do. Yeah. They, um, they interpret the text in a better way. Beautiful. I think it's so right. Such a great point. Actually, the end of the verse does not prove her point. It contradicts her point. Right? It's a great moment. It's, like a, great, it's a great rhetorical moment, right? Where she's like, and look at the rest of it. It proves my point. And actually, no. If you look at the rest of the point, the first part says, let sinners, right? Let sinners cease, and there will be no more wicked people. That actually makes a lot more sense in the simple reading of the text, right? So what's interesting, I think it's a great, tell me, Steve. Steve, Steve. So Steve says a brilliant point, right? Actually, she's not right, really. The end of the pasuk contradicts her and doesn't help her. But it's, and then Steve said to us, and that's what rabbis do. <laughs> so it's, a great, it's a great moment here because really, actually what's happening is she is saying, of course you read this pasuk in the way that you could read it, and it would make sense. Of course you can read it that way. It might even be the better read of the verse. It might even be the better read. 
But then look what ends up happening. If I read the verse that way, I end up coming to the conclusion that I can pray for my fellow Jews to die. And yes, I have te- it looks like I have textual proof for that. She's saying there's no way. There's no way I can let the Torah be used as a proof. To- Don't do that. Pray that they repent. You want there to be no more wicked people? Fine. But pray that they repent. Don't pray that they die. That's a better use of your prayer. And lo and behold, my friends, he does, and they repent, which means whose side is God on? Hers. She was able to clarify, back to Bruria, right? Bruria. She's able to clarify, at least in this, like, whenever, whenever um, someone suggests something and then it happens, it's like the divine has sort of spoken at the end of this, right? He prayed, right? But by the way, that also means that what's interesting is she hadn't come along. What would it be? God has fulfilled her marriage prayer? That's the idea. But they're good, excellent, excellent. This is a pretty positive, and specifically this is the moment I think where Bruria shows her stripes in her scholarship, right? Could be the first one also, but this is like a real moment where he's reading the verse one way, she's reading it another way, which is really the rabbinic project, and lo and behold, the text seems to support her, God seems to support her, and her husband does what she says, <laughs> right? Which is really an amazing moment. Pretty positive, <laughs> right? Pretty positive, uh, pretty positive story here. The only question I have is, what does it feel like to you? What does it feel like to you? I think it's an interesting thing here, right? In terms of the gender dynamic here, what would you call someone saying, I don't like you? Wait, you want to say something? I would just say that she's really proving that men, men uh, solve problems differently than women. We truly have different brains. Right, except what's interesting here is, which one of these is the classic male response and which is the classic female response, right? She doesn't like someone, and so what does she do? Oh, sorry, he doesn't like someone. You notice that? She doesn't. He doesn't like someone, and what does he do? He reacts emotionally. Emotionally overreactive. They should die, right? It's like not a very calm-headed. Right? She doesn't. Wait a second. Calm down. Let's talk about this rationally. Let's quote a pasuk, right? It's a very, to me the gender role reversal here, and of course this is gender with. You can't see me on the recording, but when doing little chip chooks in the air, right? Quotation marks, obviously, there's a lot to talk about in terms of gender and stereotypes and norms. But I think it's interesting to me that in this piece, to me, there feels like a real role reversal in their, in their norms, right? That he's the emotional overreactor, and she's the calm, cool-headed, precise reader Logical. of text. Logical, right? So it's very fascinating here. Please, 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 please. Go ahead. We're going to go this way. Go ahead. Okay, if the evil ones repent, are they to be forgiven for what they did? Or do we start anew? Or they could be punished for what had happened? Does this, it brings up a new line of thought. Okay, they've changed. Does that mean they're different people? Or do they still have to? Great question. All right, great. Tell me your name again. Davida. Davida. It's a really phenomenal question about what is, what is the effect of tshuva? What is the effect of repentance? Huge topic. Happy to talk more about it, but it's a little beyond the scope of this. But it's a great question. And there's a lot of different answers. Am I a new person? Have I, right? When do I repent? Do I wipe this late clean? Am I still punished? Great, important questions. Phenomenal. Good. Yes. So, but it doesn't, you were saying the role of the gender reversals, but isn't it, I think someone else is trying to say this, isn't it the men will go out to war before the women will? And the, that seems like it's not. It's a man's reacting emotionally and wants to, let's go to war, let's have them all dead. That's kind of a male. Male trope? Yeah. War, death? You think death is a male trope? Well, it's, it's let's, let's go fight him. Let's go fight him. <laughs> but you know, he doesn't say let's go fight him. What does he do? He prays. He prays. I think that's actually a different thing. The tool, the tool at his disposal is not war. Yeah, it would be interesting if like he had gone to beat them up. No, I think it's an interesting question. I think that that would raise a different, that would be a different read of this text. But he prays. And she's saying, if the tool you're using is prayer, then use it differently, right? Uh, good point, excellent, yeah. My name's Lainey. I think this has such a profound meaning for, for our days now. Yes. Say it's more. Incredible. Say more. Okay, well, I'm very active in the gun violence prevention. Mm-hmm. So let the sin cease. It's not, you know, good. you good. can't just reform these I mean, you can't completely reform them. You take away the sins. You can't, in other words. I thought we were going. I don't. I don't <laughs> say more. In other words, um, 
They wouldn't be sinners if they didn't have the tools to do it. Oh. I'm not saying take all the guns away. I'm just saying that certain guns don't need to be out there because let the sins Right, good, good. And I think there's a huge movement, right, in education about this, right? There's nothing bad kids. It's just their actions are bad. So you're a bad, you're a bad kid, you say, right? That's the bad thing you did, right? I want to try and separate your behaviors from your essence. And I think that's what she's saying to him, right? Separate the essence, the behavior. These are people, right? These are your, these are your neighbors. Like, they're in the same neighborhood, right? Look at them as humans and look for that and try and think about what are the things, how can I help them perform and change without saying they're essentially evil, right? It's that good, yeah. Harris, I wasn't agreeing with Sandy's point that he is behaving, Rabbi, in accordance with the male stereotype because this is not a philosophic disagreement. These are thugs in his neighborhood. Right, and, and, and therefore? Therefore, it's more of a male reaction. They mess with me, I'll mess with them. Ah, okay, I see. I see. So it's a revenge. It's revenge. You're messing with him, right. not with someone else. So he's taking his guy. He's taking it personally. Uh huh. That's interesting. That's a guy thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm interesting to see. I mean, part of what I mentioned this to I mentioned this to Korea at the beginning. Part of why I love to read these texts is because really what happens, what's happening here is there is a character named Burian. She lived two thousand years ago, but. What also is interesting is how we read them in 2017, yeah. right? What are we projecting onto these texts about women, about how women should behave, about what men, how men should behave, what's a guy thing, what's not a guy thing, when do women get to speak, how women have to be extra excellent in order to prove, right? So many of these tropes are still alive and well with us today, right? And who do we expect to speak? Which, by the way, the whole piece of Yochanan about Load, Naharda, you're not like us, you are like us, the chutzpah, right? How dare you? All of that is all about outsiders and insiders, right? Real questions that we're still really asking um, and struggling with today. Okay, so. Okay. Um, okay. We're going to do one more piece and then we'll end, okay, my friend? So we're going to do source number seven. I'm sorry, because four and five are really worth. Looking at, so you over Shabbat, uh, you can keep reading and learning. Um, but source number seven, okay? And I just want to say, uh, in the interests of um, intellectual integrity, this is Midrash Mishlei, right? With the Midrash on Proverbs, which is probably much later um, in Jewish history. Uh, and um, it's, it's a late Midrash. And, uh, and her name is, she, we don't see her name here. We just have the wife of Rimea. Okay, so that's just interesting to notice that and do with that what you will, okay? Um, this is a midrash on the very famous Eshet Chayel, right? A woman of valor, a woman of valor who can find, right? Which is, which is found in Proverbs, um, chapter 31. And, uh, and actually, it's a phenomenon, the midrash here, the rabbinic interpretation or, is really quite beautiful on this piece. And actually, every single line of the poem, they, they attribute to a different one of the matriarchs and women in Jewish history. So it's like an amazing composite of like amazing female characters. We're looking for an amazing text. Like Midrash Mishlei here is just absolutely beautiful. And Gloria makes it into the list, like with Sarah and, and Rivka. And, anyway, so here she is, okay? Devar acher eshechayel a woman of valor who can find. Here is an example of what it means to be a woman of valor. Amru. Masa yabar b'meir shayoshev v'derej v'bet Midrash. Okay, b'shavat mincha. They say it once happened that Rimeir was sat learning Torah on afternoon in the house of study. While he was there, his two sons died. What did their mother do? She laid them upon the bed and spread a thin linen cloth over them. At the end of Shabbat, Rivera came home and asked her, where are my sons? She replied, what happens next, my friends? What did she say? They went to the house of study. He said, huh? I just came back from there. I didn't see them there. She gave him the Havdalah cup and he said the blessing for Havdalah. Then he asked again, where are my sons? She said, oh, they, um, where'd they go? They went somewhere else, and they'll be back soon, okay? Then she gave him food to eat, and he read them all, and he ate and said the blessing. Then she said, my teacher, I have a question for you, okay? Before we get there, hold on one second. We'll just take a moment here just to understand what's going on. We, the reader, knows that actually they have died, and he, Rabbi Mayer, does not know. I want you to notice what happens. By not telling him, where they are, 
What has she allowed him to do? Finish Shabbat. What else? But let's be very precise. What are the two things that happen? Abdullah, good. Eat and pray. Although I want to be careful. It's not pray, actually. It's actually make blessings. Right, exactly. Which is important because if he had known, he would not be able to do those things. Okay? Which I want you to notice. I think it's a very fascinating, important moment here to notice, right? Because it's after Shabbat. It's after Shabbat already. We're at Havdalah, and we're already after Shabbat. We understand that. There's an understanding that they die Shabbat, and he comes home. After Shabbat, once you know that you have a loved one who has passed away, you're not allowed to do mitzvot anymore, right? You become an onen, you become in this, this, this period of aninut where you're not allowed to do mitzvot anymore. So what's interesting here, by her not telling him, it's not that she allows him to join Shabbat, but more so, I think, she allows him to make additional blessings. Which is fascinating. We have to unpack what that means, okay? But then, right? Okay. And I, I, I'm, I'm purposely harping on this point because it's not that she just gave him food, but it says here clearly she gave him food and he made a blessing. So I think that's what that's about. Rather, when the text adds additional words, okay, I think it's important to notice that. Okay, good. So, um, right? Good. Now, what do you think he's thinking at this point? So something's going on. Like, I want us to be, I think he knows. Like, what do you mean? I didn't see them there. And then he asks again. So there's a point here where he's being manipulated, but he knows he's being manipulated, right? So I think that that's interesting. Then she says, okay, my teacher, which is fascinating. To notice what they call each other is important here. Then she said, my teacher, I have a question to ask you. He says, okay, ask it. She says, my teacher, again, earlier today, a man came here and gave me something to keep for him, and now he has returned to ask for it back. Shall we return it or not? She, he replies, my daughter, BT. It's actually, just notice that he, she calls him my teacher, he calls her BT, right, it's interesting. He who has received something on deposit must surely return it to his owner. She replied, without your knowledge, I would not return it. Um, now, here's another thing. My wife is Bruria. My wife is Bruria. She doesn't know when someone comes to give you a deposit, you have to give it back. <laughs> Who, who knows that? Everybody knows that. This is not like a complicated area of halacha, what's the oven, what's the, no. It's when someone gives you a deposit, they come to ask for it back, you give it back to them, right? It's not, it's not a complicated, so this is another moment where he should be like, what? What are you talking about? We just learned the most complicated suge yesterday. What, you don't know this? Like, there should be a moment here where, but he's, he's not getting it, and she, what would you say about her behavior? What's she trying to do? Soften. Good. There's a moment where she's trying to prepare him, spiritually, physically, right, intellectually. She is preparing all things she knows about. She's preparing, she's preparing the ground for him, right? Um, and uh, without your knowledge, I wouldn't return it, which I also think is interesting. Why does she call him, right? There's also a moment here where she's like lowering herself. She's showing him tremendous kavod, tremendous respect, maybe even too much, you would say, right? And, right, and then she takes him by the hand, also like very sort of, infantile moment, right? And brings him up to the bed and took away the cloth and he saw them lying upon the bed. Then he began to weep and said about each, oh my son, my son, my teacher, my teacher. I just want you to notice that, right? He's her teacher and their sons are his teacher. Just to notice all this teacher language. They were my sons because thus is the way of the world, but they were my teachers because they gave light to their father's face through their knowledge of terror. Then his wife said to him, did you not say to me that one must return it upon to its owner? Does it not say, Hashem Latan, Hashem Akach, a very famous Hashem, Hashem God gives, God takes away. May the, Lord of the name, may the name of the Lord be blessed. So she comforted him and quieted his mind. And that is why it says, Eshachayel Nimsa, a woman of valor who can find. Okay, what do we think about this text? This is a very difficult text, it's very painful. There's a lot here, I know. It's very resonant, it's going to be sometimes hard to learn this text. I want to say that. But what do we think about that? What do we think about her here? Yeah. Good. There's a tremendous amount of inner strength here, right? Good. Dahlia says no. Great. Strength of character. Excellent. Good. Yeah. She's not Good, right? Tell me your name again. I know you told me already. Gail. Thanks, Gail. Right? So she doesn't, we don't see her weep here, which I think is interesting to notice, right? The whole piece is about her husband's needs. Her needs, nowhere in this piece do we see her needs. Nowhere do we see her grief. Um, as far as being recorded, but I once had someone suggest 
that because this piece is no grief of hers, that perhaps she was involved in their death in some way, which, which I also think, as I said, that certainly no, no one in the room agrees with that, it's interesting. Okay, but I, I think it's fascinating because we would expect a mother to, where is the mother's grief here? Where is it? Right, it's all about her husband, Korea, go ahead. She's actually in shock, and, and she doesn't know how to respond to it, and, and her grief is so overwhelming that she just sort of gets into uh, a mode of like, okay, I'm gonna put my own needs aside, and that is true. Like, that is a real thing that happens with pain and shock and mourning, that like, I'm gonna put my own needs aside, I'm not, I can't fall apart yet, I gotta take care of mayor, that's what it's all about, right? And that's interesting because the, the, what I'm also interested in here is like the narrator voice of what is a woman about her, right? Oh, in, in many ways, she's a very positive person, a very positive character here again, right? Very positive because she is, is completely taking care of her husband. But I think it's interesting to me, right, that the text here again has her as the strong one, right? Again, her as teaching Torah, right? She teaches a verse from Job. It's very unlikely that Mary doesn't know that, right? But he needs to be reminded in that moment of this piece of Torah. Yes. have a very strong parental connection to them, right? What's your name? Jones. Jones. No, no, great. So I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's a, it's a, very, it's a very interesting question. In other words, maybe I think fathers and sons have a stronger relationship than mothers and sons, perhaps. Although, I don't know, it's always interesting, like in Breshit, at this time of year when we're reading all these stories in Genesis, like I always think like, oh my gosh, the mothers are so actively involved in their son's future. So it's an interesting... It's an interesting question, but maybe, maybe this is about, maybe this is the text saying, yes, I want the wife to be focused, right? A woman of valor is about focusing on her husband, not her children, and we take away her motherhood status here. Okay, so many hands. I want to take them all. Can I take them all? Yes? Yes? Okay. This is your chance, guys, before I'm going to wrap it up at the end. This is your chance. Okay. We women we're going to go this way. Yeah. ourselves to take care of other people first Good. before we take care of ourselves. Good. Such an important point. This is a classic female trope in that way. Right? Um, she, she takes care of everyone else's needs. She doesn't even think about her own needs, right? She, she has the wherewithal to call her husband my teacher, to put him in the right, right? Very, very important here. And then, then in that reading, I find Isha Chayalmin very disturbing, actually. That the text, the narrator here says to us, this is a woman of value, right? And it's really real, it's really real. Like, on the other hand, we can't forget that the female character here, really, again, who we mayor, right? So what I think is interesting is, the rabbis here are building an ideal female character, and who is she? She's a rabbi, right? I think it's interesting to notice that really, really happening in this piece, right? When I talk about like, the ideal woman that I build, is a woman who puts aside all of her needs, and her main focus is Torah and her husband, right? It's an interesting ideal dream woman, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, thank you for not only bringing these texts, but giving it this kind of nuance. Because we tend to focus on Broria, she's known by name, and it's like a, you know 21st century women's role and so on, and it's not nearly that clear. Right. That she's still, she's still not a man. Right, and I, right. And I think in the 21st century female ideal, right, you know, image of what an ideal woman is, it's also not clear, right? right? It wasn't clear in the year 200, and it's not clear in the year 2017. It's complicated. Do I have to be better then? Why do I have to be better then? Do I have to put everyone else's needs before you? What about my needs? Where am I more? Where is my voice in these texts? So great, I can hack it in the yeshiva, but what did I have to give up? Right? Real questions that are alive and well, right? Karina, go ahead. Of crying, she has to divert 
her right. sorrow onto her husband and let him grieve. Because if she goes there, she can't be that 150% that she needs to be to complete her role. Yes, yes. I think that's such a great point. Such a great point. What do we have to turn off? How do we have to not be emotional, right? In order to be, well, I can't be too emotional in the workplace, so I have to turn that off. And then what, when I have to turn it on, do I know how? Can I be soft, right? Mayor has no problem being angry, being overreact, right? Being emotional, reacting emotionally. He has no problem with that because he can be himself here and here. But she, right, it's a really interesting reality, right? Where do I have to turn my, right? Dial myself down because how are they gonna, what are they gonna think of me in my professional? I'm not, right? Really important. And when it comes to personal things, what happens, right? Excellent. Larry, you want to say something? Yeah, I thought sure, but the, uh, the positive read you're taking, I mean, there's a very strong anti feminist reading in this that she totally suppresses herself, and the only thing that matters is her husband, and the whole Asia Kyle poem that people read Good. is. So you see her as servant in this text? In Asia Chayo, you see her as servant, or here in this text, you see her as servant? Servant, or servitude, maybe? Wait, there was there was people from before. I'm sorry, guys. I want. I'm here. I'm here until Shabbat starts. Keep talking. talking. <laughs> okay. No. Okay, You're good. Okay, Davida. Okay. The least emphasis is on her role as a mother. <coughs> she's a student. She's a daughter. She's a wife. Right. Now okay. back when she was living, her husband was allowed many wives. Mm -hmm. Could there be the implication that she wasn't the birth mother? Great question. I think we never hear about Mayer having more than one wife. I also want to say that most of the rabbis do not have more than one wife because a wife is very expensive. <laughs> In all honesty, right? It's very, it's very expensive. <laughs> I'm not saying this in a, in a gendered way, although there's a lot we can unpack this, but I do think it's important to understand that like in the rabbinic world, I have to keep my wife at a very specific standard, and it's, it's, it's like delineated how much money she gets every week, how many rounds of figs she gets every week, how much grain, how much wine, so, and, and they're not wealthy. They're not, there are rabbis who are very wealthy. Mayor is not one of them, Akiva is not one of them, so it seems, un, to me, it would be unlikely, we, and we never hear about it. But it could be, I guess it could be, maybe she's the stepmom. Right. But we never hear about it. And also the text says her two sons die. Right? So I think it's a very important, uh, right? Sorry. No, yeah. Masa Iman, right? Like, what did their mother do? It could be a stepmother, but I, I think it's unlikely from this text. But let's keep it alive because who knows? And then how does that change the reading of the story? But it is a very, I will say this. Maybe we'll do this next year. There is a very phenomenal phenomenal like wealth of rabbinic literature about stepmothers. Very interesting, worth exploring. Okay, so how do these boys die and why together? We don't know, we don't know. Great question. Now, here's a, wait, maybe we'll just sidebar that. I have to end, I already want to end. Sidebar quickly, it's possible at this time, remember all the students that read Kiva died because there was a terrible plague? So maybe this is what's going on here. Some scholars have suggested that that has actually happened. I still want to talk, take more hands, but we have to end. I just want to say, and I, I, I purposefully never do this part. Oh my gosh, I'm 10 minutes over. Okay, we only have to end. But we, there's a whole piece here about how she dies. And there's a very tragic, tragic story about, sorry, about, or I'm closing, about, about how she dies. And, uh, and it very, it's very tragic. And I want to just say it only appears in Rashi. It's on your pages, source number 10. A very tragic, terrible story about seduction. Very sad. And I just want to say that that story does not appear in the Talmud. It only appears in Rashi. With that, in 11th century France, with that, Rashi in general does not repeat stories he doesn't have a very strong tradition for. So do with that what you will. So keep reading to hear the sort of end of the saga. But I'm not, with this last sentence, I'm going to close. I just want to say thank you so much. And also, it was wonderful to learn her. And, and back to Steve's point about complexity. Every, Tal every character in the Talmud is a complex character. And it teaches us, I think, that we shouldn't look at things on the surface. N not in 200 and not in 2017. 
and what it means to be an ideal woman and what it means to be a mythic character who's a woman uh, is something we're still struggling with. The questions of women in the workplace, women in the home, relationships, parenthood. There's still very real questions that are with us uh, and are alive and well. Thank you guys so much. Thank you.